The reading that the sermon is based on is from Mark chapter 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had been known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet like one of those prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, "Ask, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she she came in immediately and with haste uh, to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. All right, um, please raise your hand if you've ever heard the words absolute truth. Have you ever heard of absolute truth? Now, I swear, I was given advice. I called up Pastor Rogers. I was like, what should I do for my first sermon? He's like, oh, make sure that you bring up like a philosophical term or like a complicated concept. And, you know, that will, you know, just kick things off great. Uh, But anyways, just kidding. This absolute truth is something that has permeated the pop culture so well that I think all of us here could probably come up here and give a definition, and we would probably all be very similar, though a little bit different. Um, But it's a very simple concept. Absolute truth, even, it's, it's when, even though people may have many opinions or preferences about something, at the end of the day, only one thing is true. For example, uh, everyone prefers their, you know, their favorite sport team or their favorite whiskey. And, you know, I root for the, the White Sox. I root for the Cardinals. I, I actually, I woke up to the score and I could not believe <laughs> that the Cardinals had beaten the Cubs last night. But anyways, uh, <laughs> the absolute truth of the matter is that the last one of this pool of rivals and uh, my favorite teams, the last one to win the World Series was the Chicago Cubs. And uh, Buffalo Trace Bourbon is the one that's bringing home the gold medals every year. But the difficulty with absolute truth is that no one wants to hear it, especially those that need to. We saw this morning in the Old Testament lesson or reading that 
the, even the high priest did not want to hear of Amos's message that the king had to repent and trust God's plan. Well, so over my vicarage year, it's uh, the year-long kind of internship thing where I help out at a church somewhere. I uh, try my best to learn things that I'll use maybe here someday. I experimented with lots of things, and I was formed in many and various ways, but I think I made a key mistake that persisted and was more lasting for more than that year. You see, I would go on these pastoral visits with the supervising pastor, the, uh, this, the senior pastor, and uh, I needed to bring all these things with me to the visits. I needed to bring my wallet, my phone, uh, a pastoral care companion, a Bible, um, my keys, all these things. And I was like, what if there was some sort of bag that I could use to carry all of this stuff? And I was brainstorming, and I was like, I can't, I can't wear a backpack. It will mess up what I'm wearing. It, um, it will, I'll be taking it out and off. It will be distracting. What, isn't there like a small bag that can be readily available right here at my waist, and I can access it? And then if I want, I can just swing it around back when I'm walking or moving around, and it won't you know, get in the way. So the fanny pack arrived a few days later, and I opened it up, and my lovely wife, I showed it to her, and she was like, oh, Dan, that's wonderful. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, Brigida. She was very supportive. And then I brought it to work, and first the secretary just smiled. She saw my fanny pack, and then the deaconess covered her mouth, and then the senior pastor usually a pretty stoic guy, got a good grin out of him. And I said, wow, they just, they, they're, they're jealous of my fanny pack. I made the right choice, and they're just, they, they're just so happy for me. And then I started to wear it out and about. I got giggles from cashiers. I got some supporters out there. Uh, but finally, unbarred from public customs of politeness, I wore it to a family get-together. And this is where I had to face the music. Unbridled laughter and criticism for my fanny pack. I denied it and I denied it. I didn't want to face the absolute truth of the matter. Fanny packs will never again return as a small good storage option in the public eye. It goes to show that maybe even sometimes peer pressure actually does do what it's supposed to do. But we're all lucky that that day, the absolute truth of the matter also aligned with the peer pressure for a public good. Well, in the gospel text today, we actually see the opposite. We, we hear recounted from my old friend, Mark, the story of John the baptizer's martyrdom his martyrdom for the gospel, for the absolute truth, for Christ, as a forerunner of Christ himself. You see, the story's actually framed. It's got, like, bookends. And they're not included in the reading for some reason. But, you see, Jesus had just sent out his 12 apostles to go preach, uh, cast out demons, anoint people with oil, um, heal the sick. 
And when Herod hears about this and that Jesus sent them to do it, he begins to fear the name Jesus. He says, this Jesus guy sure sounds a lot like John. He's doing and saying very troublesome things. And some people were saying that Jesus, he might be John resurrected. Some say, oh, he was Elijah, since he is speaking against the king like the prophets of old. And some were like, eh, I've seen him. It's pretty impressive. He's probably a prophet, but, you know, he's just another one. Well, King Herod hears all these opinions, and he comes out and he nails down his take. This is Jesus, and without a doubt, it is John the baptizer, raised from the dead, the one that I killed. Even in death, the imprisoned, penniless, wild John the baptizer scares King, King Herod, the tyrant. The tyrant who has it all. You see, John always stood up for the truth, the absolute truth. He, he never just nodded his head along while people spoke lies around him or stayed silent as people in authority acted outside of the way of the Lord. And King Herod was always intrigued. It says that John perplexed him. Of all the guests to his court, this guy was not a brown noser. And he told, he told Herod, he told the king, that what he was doing was wrong. He said, Herod, it's not lawful for you to sleep with your brother's wife. But Herod's new wife wouldn't hear it. The absolute truth from Yahweh's plan, the way of the Lord, did not agree with her felt needs. So he killed John. He cut off his head at his wife's request. And this is where Mark draws us into the story. Our, us fellow Christians... Uh, it's through John, through and through these bookends that I'm talking about, where the apostles are being sent out and brought back in. To the average passerby, this story might be a warning. Don't tell it straight to people in authority. Sugarcoat things when you're delivering hard truth. But he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is an absolute truth that is at stake in the world that is much larger than fanny packs, sports teams, and bourbons. When you're chatting with people at work, you're at a work meeting, you're at a Boy Scout meeting, you're at a board meeting or something, and everyone's trying to get you to nod along to that slander, to just deceitfulness, to to just something inappropriate for the, for the situation, something that doesn't testify to the truth, do you just nod along with them? Or does a snake slither up on your shoulder and say, surely God did not say? And then you say, all right, snake, I'll agree with them. Or when you feel the butterflies in your stomach when you're getting your hair cut, or when you're at the supermarket, or you're at a family party with someone you've known for 30 years, and you get those butterflies because you realize that the, this person needs God's word on the topic. They need to hear the soothing gospel. And so you push it down deep and deeper and deeper until it goes away because you don't want to make it awkward for yourself in this 
few seconds? Or do you say, no, enough is enough. The truth is important and will stand on its own. I will live not by lies like John. I wouldn't let a mom drive off with a car seat on top of her car. I wouldn't let my dad unscrew a ceiling fan when the power's still on. I would not allow my friend, my family, my enemy to not feel the soothing power of Christ's forgiveness because I was too embarrassed that one time. But if you do, if you stand up for the truth, you are risking yourself. You're risking your reputation, your money, your family standing, or even your life. Because you're being called to risk and lose far more than that because you are the evangelist sent out by Jesus and constantly returning to Jesus to share the good news, to heal the sick with God's promises, to cast out demons in his name. What happened to John? What happened to Peter? What happened to James? What happened to Jesus? Could very well happen to you. A professor I dearly respect, he would always tell me, or tell the class, when, we were, when someone would bring up this text, he would say, remember, martyrdom stalks those who spread the reign and rule of God's kingdom. The devil has put a target on your back. But before that can happen to you, Christ followers, your you apostles, before Christ can take it all on himself, it must happen to John. Because you see, what happens to John happens to John because he is in a long line of prophets and truth speakers from God. The f- <clears throat> and truth, truth speakers from God to Christ, to you. When the apostles were struggling to make sense of Jesus' transfiguration, of his frequent predictions that he must die, uh, you know, suffer, die, rise again, uh, they finally asked Jesus, if what you're saying is true, if the kingdom of God really is at hand, if it's breaking into our world, if the end has come, then why do they say that Elijah needs to come first? Why did John the Baptist come before you? Jesus responds, I tell you, Elijah has come. John the baptizer has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. In this very laconic, terse, one sentence, Jesus links what happened to John to what happened to the prophets before him, And what must happen to himself for you? He must be handed over to a kangaroo court, be unjustly tried and sentenced to death, and three days later, rise again. He says, can the wedding wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. 
and then they will fast in that day. That's where Jesus is linking what happened to John to himself. Jesus is the bridegroom Messiah of Israel. What has happened to the prophets of old will happen to John, will happen to Christ, will happen to his apostles, might happen to you. Or maybe it already has. I haven't visited you all in your homes yet. Maybe you already stand up for the truth to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your enemies. Maybe you've already been canceled, blocked, uninvited. The phone don't ring no more. Maybe you're hurt. And I understand that. But do not try to save yourself. Do not try to save yourself, your reputation, your money, your family standing, or even your own life or the life of a family member by denying Christ and the gospel. If you do, you'll be sorry. But I know that many of you here have already been killed for Christ's sake, for his glory, and the glory of his Father who sent him when you were baptized. I know that you may not remember it, but your old Adam or Eve was violently drowned in front of everybody, or maybe in private, maybe in an emergency, and you might have even cried while it happened. But now those benefits that you receive daily from a new king with no equal are now here for you today. You are now Christ's brother or sister, the king's co-heir, receiving the full inheritance of the kingdom, as Paul writes today. You receive the forgiveness of sins when someone you've wronged forgives you, as though Christ has forgiven you himself. You receive life, forgiveness, and salvation in the supper. Compare these two kings, King Herod and Jesus. King Herod, the deceitful culture of the United States of America, the the king of this world, Satan, says, "Ask, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. But victorious King Jesus, the Messiah bridegroom, the first and the last, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. One kills, kills others out of weakness to suppress God's truth and save his own life, and the other dies on a cross for you so that you can have life eternal. King Herod, Satan, The kingdom of this world says, deny the truth and I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. All I need is the head of those who speak the truth on a platter. Help me do it. Stop being friends with them. Stop inviting them to your house. Report them to, I don't know, HR. Block them. Unfollow them on Facebook. Stop listening to them. Please listen to me. Whereas Jesus in your baptism says to you, you are, this is from Luke You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you may eat and drink with me at my table in my kingdom. It is yours. You are my brother. 
You are my sister, and the full inheritance is yours. So please, don't be caught perplexed or admiring Jesus like King Herod, like most people in this country, in this state, in this city. Instead, please, I appeal to you, be washed in the waters of baptism. Have faith. Believe on him. Follow him to death. Follow him to eternal life. Jesus' death is for you. His resurrection, alive still to this day, is for you. His baptism is for you. And it's not only for you, it is for your children and your children's children. It is your heritage. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for a changed or upright life. He is who the prophets and John prepared for and pointed to constantly. Even God the Father points to his Son and not himself. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lutheran Church of the Holy Spirit, points to the Savior Jesus Christ, who is your King, now and forever. Jesus, I a called and ordained servant of Christ for the first time, invite you to follow Jesus from suffering to death to life to life eternal. Amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.